Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Restore. My name is Bonnie Lewis, and I am so happy to be with you today. I also live in Austin. I have a husband and two kids. I'm an author. I love to paddleboard, and that is a little bit about me. Um, The other thing you should know about me is that I went to seminary, and when I did, I read countless books about how to read the Bible. I was taught the Greek and the Hebrew, and all these different commentaries. And the one book that was the most transformational for me in learning how to read the Bible is called How to Read Literature Like a Professor. And it was actually not in my seminary curriculum, but a book at Barnes & Noble. And I love this book because it teaches us that the Bible is full of symbols, of metaphors, of these intricate weavings of meanings and interpretation. And so preaching is such a joy for me because I get to come and help unlock that in you. My goal is not to tell you what it means, but my goal is to open up something and start a conversation in your home and in your heart about what the Bible might mean to you. So I also believe that that's what Jesus did, and we will get to that in a minute, but we are going to start. Today we are reading Luke 5, verses 1 through 11, and if you have your Bible, you can follow along, but they will also be on the screen. So um, we are reading out of the NIV. I'm going to read it through one time, and then we'll go back and sort of pick it apart together. One day, as Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus's knee and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the son of uh, Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so they pulled their boats up from the shore, left everything and followed him. So what is this passage about? Um, I'm going to start with a little bit of a literature lesson. And you know what's funny is I actually never teach with note cards, but I had to take a teaching class or a preaching class, a speaking class in like middle school. Did you have, I think it was called Toastmasters and you had to get up there and they 
like rang a bell every time you said um, and they made you have note cards. So because I am approaching the text from a literature standpoint, note cards felt fitting. Um, so literature 101, the first thing when we read a story like this and we see things like fish, a boat, nets, we want to ask ourselves, is that a symbol for something? And the answer always is yes. Of course it is. It's absolutely a symbol. It's a, absolutely a symbol for something else. These are awesome um, uses of literary tools that pull us into the text in a brand new way. So is, the, is it a symbol? Yes. Is the fish a symbol? Yes. Is the boat? Yes. Is the net? Yes. It's all symbol. And so then we say, well, what does it mean? I'm with you that it would be amazing to know exactly what it meant. And it would also be amazing that it had one meeting because that feels super manageable. That feels like something we can put a stake in the ground that we can then go and live our lives knowing, well, the fish means this and the boat means this. And so therefore that's what it means to me. We all want it to mean one thing, but in the fabric of symbolism is that it actually means and can mean many things. If we reduce it down to one meaning, if we say it only means this, then it's no longer a symbol. The story's no longer a story. It's actually just an allegory. And it sort of loses a bit of its flavor, a bit of its layers. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to invite you in to looking at the Bible as um, an invitation it's actually a method of inquiry. We get to look at the text. We get to find the symbols. We get to ask questions. We get to pull back these layers. There's this beautiful ancient saying, and uh, rabbis used to talk about the Bible or the Torah as like if you were to take a gem and hold it up to the light. And when you held it up to the light, the light would shine through and reflect out the other side. But if you turn the gem the light then reflects out a different side and illuminates something entirely different. And so reading the Bible should be like turning a gem, is that we should constantly say, as Hebrews tells us, the Bible is living and active, and so what does it mean today? If I turn this gem, if I look at it from a different angle, if I keep searching for symbol and meaning, what new will come out of it? It's a posture of saying the Bible is a continuous invitation to abundant meaning and symbolism, that God is alive, that it is moving, the spirit is working and continually showing us how to be present in the world today. And I believe that that's what Jesus did with his ministry as well. So um, I want to read this poem to you, actually. It's from Mary Oliver, who's one of my favorite poets. And this poem um, is about another story about loaves and fishes. But I'm reading it to you to show how we can take symbols like loaves, fish, bread, wine. And if we reduce it down to one thing, we, we might miss it. But if we get to open it up, it becomes something different. So this poem is called Logos, and she says this, Why wonder about the loaves and the fish? If you say the right words, the wine expands. If you say them with love and felt the ferocity of that love and felt the necessity of that love, the fish explode into many. So imagine him speaking and don't worry about what is reality or what is plain or what is mysterious. If you were there, it was all these things.
if you can imagine it, it's all these things. So eat, drink, and be happy. Accept the miracle and accept too each spoken word spoken with love. I absolutely love that poem because it reminds us that the very first rule of symbolism is that it's not, it's never only about the fish. It's never only about the thing we think it is. And here's how I know that is it's a little bit too obvious for Jesus to say, you were fishers of fish and now you're fishers of men. We're talking about Jesus here. He speaks in parables. He doesn't give away any of the answers. The disciples ask him questions and he just asks questions back. He is not one to just lay it all out there. So if we're reading a story and the symbolism seems plain as day, that's an invitation to go deeper. The first rule, it's never only about the fish. And especially for Jesus, he belonged to a long line of what we like to call the oral tradition. And the, before the Bible was written down, it was all oral. It was people like me and people like you and all the people meeting online doing this sort of gathering but around campfires and dinner tables and on the road and maybe even in fishing boats. And so Jesus knows about what it means to dialogue about a text. And we see him doing this in parables as well. He never just lays it out straight. He talks in code. He's like, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. What does that mean? right? He is wants us to go deeper in, to say, what's the question behind the question? What's, what's the overarching theme behind the fish? And so to find the meaning, we have to start at the beginning. So I'm going to go through some of these verses to see if we can deduce at least one meaning that might be present within this text. So verse one, One day, Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God. So let me ask you this. What is the word of God? Um, Embarrassingly, I take so much of my own uh, lens, my own upbringing, my own status, my own wealth, my own neighborhood, my own country, and I read it into the text. So if you are like me and you say, well, the word of God is the Bible, I understand why you did that. But it's also not correct because the Bible wasn't in its form then. Jesus didn't have a Bible standing there talking to the people. And so um, I have to dig deeper. What is the word of God? What are we talking about? Could it be the Torah? Could it be those first five books? Ah, maybe. The plot thickens. Because that makes a lot of sense. If it is the Torah, it fits nicely into who Jesus is around. So remember when Zach said we can, hear, we can know a lot about Jesus' ministry based on the people he surrounds himself with. So almost every boy in Jewish society would have grown up and had a big task at hand. That task was to memorize the Torah. And I don't mean kind of know what it's about. I mean word for word. The first five books of the Bible were totally memorized. Now the goal of memorizing the Torah is to become a rabbi. 
And so it would go like this. You would spend all of these years in school. You would be studying. You'd be studying the words of it. And then you'd also be studying the interpretations of it. And so then as you got older, you would follow around different rabbis who you believed in their yoke or their interpretation of the text. And your goal was to show them what a good student you were because you wanted to become a rabbi yourself. Now, those rabbis, they chose the best of the best. It was like picking the A team, right? And so they said, you can be my disciple, and you can be my disciple, and you can be my disciple. And if you didn't get chosen, that was the end of the line for you to become a rabbi. Instead, you went back to your family business. That could have been different for everybody. But there was a clear line drawn. These people made the cut, and these people did not. And so they would memorize the Torah. They would follow around these rabbis, and only the best of the best are chosen. So verse 2, it says, He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. So these fishermen, they were the ones not chosen. And how do I know that? Because if they were, they wouldn't have been fishing, right? They would have been out following the rabbis. They would have been sitting at the rabbi's feet in the synagogues, in the marketplaces. They would have been becoming rabbis. These men are fishermen. These men are part of their family business. And so the first thing we notice about who Jesus surrounds himself with is he picks the people who were rejected. He says, I am going out into my ministry, and I am going to choose these men. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were starting a business, or writing a book, or um, making a new product, you probably would not choose the people that were rejected. You would choose the best of the best. You would choose the person with the most followers, the accolades. You would choose someone else, but not Jesus. He started his ministry by saying, these people that were told they were not good enough and they were not welcome, these people will be my disciples. Verse 3. He got into one of the boats, the ones belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. I absolutely love that he does this because he is making a huge statement. Another literary tool is if there is a change of scenery, if the person in the story goes to a boat, goes on a mountain, goes underground, goes in a cave... That's a clue that that means something important. So, like I said, people that wanted to become rabbis, they followed the rabbis around, learning from them. And often, the rabbis would sit in the synagogues and teach. And the synagogues, they were a holy place. And if you were a rabbi, you were going into a holy job, right? And if you were not, then it was mundane. It was boring. It was maybe full of failure, something you might be ashamed of, that you had to keep doing what you were always doing even though you studied your whole life to do something different. And so Jesus, he reorients this term of holy by teaching them in a boat. He takes something ordinary and he makes it sacred. And that's how he starts his ministry. So from the get-go, 
he stops drawing lines in the sand between the sacred and the secular, to use our terms, the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean. And we see that all throughout his ministry. So instead of a synagogue, he uses a boat. And instead of the A-team, he picks those that have been rejected. So usually... We continue on in the story, and then we get to the part where we're like, oh my gosh, look at that. They were fishers of fish, and now they're fishers of men. Get it? And we want to like just wrap it in a bow and say, so you go now and catch men. And that's our best attempt at it, and even at that, it's a tad confusing, because what does that actually mean? I don't know. So this is where we usually run into trouble, right? That's what happens when we try to take a symbol and deduce it down to one meaning. So I want to turn the gem with you a bit. I want to uncover a little bit more. So it's too obvious, like we said, that they no longer fish fish, that they fish men. And even though it's a beautiful point that he chooses those rejected by society, that also can't be the full point of the story because there's so much going on here. So I want you to look back um, at that verse one again. One day, Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee with the people crowding around him and they were listening to the word of God. I am so nerding out right now because the, that word for word is actually the Greek word for logos. And I love the fact that the Bible is full of all these intricate um, maps of symbols, of words, that if we look at it, we get to piece it together, like this beautiful tapestry. When I was going through seminary, I used to be studying, and I'd get so excited, and I would just yell, oh my gosh, God is such a literary genius. And everyone would just look at me like, what? she's talking about. So this is one of those moments though, okay? Because the word there is the word logos. Now the other place that this word logos, it's used all over the Bible, but the other place that it has a very definitive description of it is in John, um, and this is not going to be on the screen, but John 1, 1, and it says this, in the beginning was the word logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. So it's telling us that in the beginning, this word, this logos was there with God. And that everything in the world was made in and through God. Richard Rohr says that that means that we live in this Christ-soaked world, that there has not been one thing that has been made, one person, one word, one thing that is not in the blueprint of Jesus on it, that has the Christ blueprint on it. And so, um, since the beginning of humanity, though, we are doing exactly what we see happening here. As we have often said, this job is holy, this one is not. These words are holy, this is not. This music, this path, this narrative, whatever you want to say. We put boxes around things that are holy and sacred. And when we do that, we claim that everything outside those lines are not. But the word, the logos, the incarnation tells us that everything was made in and through Jesus. And so maybe 
one of the points of this story is that everything is holy. That Jesus started his ministry by saying, I am breaking down those walls. I don't have to teach in a synagogue because I can teach in a boat. I don't have to pick the A-team because everybody is called and chosen and worthy. So there are many points to the story. There are many symbols that we can look at. But this one, that everything is holy, that's how the story starts, is that he is sitting and he is teaching the logos, the incarnate, the, the uh, ministry, the cosmic Christ inside. He is teaching the whole thing to everybody to say, you don't have to have these credentials to do the work I have called you to do. I find this to be so compelling and so timely for our lives right now during the pandemic, right? Everything um, used to be traveling. Um, I saw these people. I went to work. I was there on time. I worked 60 hours a week. I never saw my family. Like, we hear these stories a lot. We also hear stories of we used to go to the park and we had these play dates or these people over, and now suddenly everything has sort of just slowly stopped. And we are faced with very tactile things. Everything feels ordinary and mundane. But maybe there's a call that that's where the holy is. That we used to have this picture to find God. We needed to transcend these mundane, ordinary moments and have this sort of out-of-body experience, right? And we had to study hard and be in the temple. But what if God's saying, no, 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 I'm right here, right in front of you. I'm with the fish. I'm in the business. I'm, I'm in the boat. See, Jesus has always been a very tactile guy. <laughs> if you look through his text, it's always these ordinary items that turn into something big. It's the mustard seed that's planted. It's the wineskins, it's the loaves, it's the fish, it's the party, it's the dinner table. And so I'm wondering if part of turning the gem today for us is to say, what are these mundane things that I can actually find the holy in? Where is the invitation? See, we're always looking for God to move in these huge ways. But what if it's right in front of us all along? What if we continually are passing something by in our lives, but the minute we invite Jesus in, the minute we say, this might be an invitation, then the whole net is full. So there's this thing. I'm a big uh, novel, obviously, literature nerd, but I also really love uh, theater and musical theater. And there's this thing that playwrights do that I find to be fascinating. If you're reading a book, a normal book, they are going to spell out everything so that you can paint a picture in your mind of what's happening, right? She sat on the yellow chair and her face crumpled up in anger, that type of thing. If you're watching a play, you see it instead of hearing it. And so a lot of times in plays and in movies and in TV shows, we see something going on in the outside world that is supposed to give the audience a clue of what's happening internally to the characters or what is foreshadowing. So my husband and I were watching this show 
And there was a couple, and they were boyfriend and girlfriend, and they had a, oh no, they were newlyweds, and they had a Christmas tree, and then they woke up in the middle of the night, and their Christmas tree was on fire. Then they put the Christmas tree out, and that was the end of the episode. And I turned to my husband, and I said, oh, that's a bummer. They're totally going to break up. And my husband said, how do you know that? Their Christmas tree burned. And I said, oh, that was a, that was a literary device. That was a foreshadow to what's to come. And sure enough, two episodes later, they broke up. And so my invitation, my challenge to you is this. Maybe God is in the little things. Jesus came and the first thing he did in his ministry is sort of dismantle this idea that it has to be big and profound and other than instead of being right here in front of us. So is it a symbol? Absolutely. Is it only about that symbol? No. What are the things in your life that are symbols? Where are the invitation? What is pointing you into something deeper? Is it the virtual learning? Is it the snotty noses? Is it the dishes, right? We don't always get to be in the mundane. But right now, we do. And we don't want to miss that invitation. So this week, my challenge to you is to look at the mundane and to say, is this ordinary, but could it be holy? Have I been viewing it as less than, but maybe he's right here all along. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you speak in everything. We thank you that everything is under your authority and has your fingerprint on it. We thank you that there is holy to be found in the mundane, that there is beauty to be found in the things that pass us by. We ask for eyes to see that this week, that we may embrace the most ordinary parts of our life to remember that this is where you do your best work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.